This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. For those of us remaining in the room, if you have a Bible, please open it to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. We just finished a few weeks looking at some of the meals of Jesus but in a larger sense, looking at the hospitality of Jesus as he welcomes in sinners. And in a few weeks, we'll start up a new series, but just for this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to spend some time in 1 Peter, looking at what God has given his people in that book. And so again, if you have your Bible, open it to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll be in there this morning. But before we read our passage, we have to understand a little bit about this book. John just read a few verses that take place just a little while before 1 Peter 4, but backing up even more to understand Peter's letter, we have to understand why he's writing in the first place. As you can tell, Peter is a fairly short letter. In most Bibles, it probably just takes up a few pages. And unlike most of the other letters in the New Testament, it's not written by Paul, but as we might guess from the name, it's written by Peter, one of Jesus' apostles. And Peter wrote this letter not to a specific town or place, but rather he wrote it broadly to Christians who were scattered all throughout the region where Christianity started in the Middle East and Asia and the Mediterranean. And he writes this letter to Christians scattered all throughout that are dispersed around the lands specifically so that they might know who they are in Christ and that they might have hope in the face of opposition. A clear message all throughout Peter's letter is that if you are a Christian, you will look vastly different than someone who's not a Christian. What John just read said that we're a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a nation set apart. Peter tells his reader over and over again, if you claim to follow Christ, what that means is you will look different, you will talk different, you'll act different than your neighbor who's not a Christian. So that begs the question, what does a Christian look like? If we're supposed to look different, what is it that we're supposed to look like? This morning, as we think on that, we should wonder, if someone had never met a Christian before, how would you describe that a way, the way that a Christian acts and behaves to that person? If someone's never heard of Christianity, if they've never heard of Jesus, and you tell them there's this person, Jesus, that all these people follow, and they're called Christians, and they ask you, well, what, what do these Christians look like? What kind of people are they like? How would you answer Or to ask the question more personally, if you are a Christian, how does your life look different from a time when you weren't a Christian? Or maybe that was so long ago, now it's hard to remember. We could ask the inverse and ask, if I stopped being a Christian tomorrow, what about my life would look different from who I am today? So if we're left with the task of sort of describing what a Christian looks like, there's a few things we could try. If we're talking to this person who's never heard of Christianity or Christians, we might try to describe some of the behavioral differences that mark a Christian. So, well, Christians uh, try not to swear. They try to have clean language or they're kind. 
or they're the kind of people that go to church on a Sunday morning, or they spend a lot of time reading this book called the Bible. They listen to a different kind of music that talks about bible things that other people don't listen to. If you're in Chicago, you might say that a Christian has 90.1 as one of their radio presets. But if you try to describe what a Christian is and what they look like just based on the things they do, it doesn't seem to capture the whole picture. It's entirely possible. And in fact, it's exceedingly likely that there are many people who do all of those things but are not Christians. And there might be even some who do little to none of those things but are true Christians. And so if you're trying to sum up what a Christ follower is, you can't just turn to sort of some of our behaviors or habits to say what we look like. So instead, we might try and describe what a Christian is with the language of belief. We could say, well, a Christian believes in God or believes in the Bible or they believe that Jesus died for their sins and is their savior. Christian believes in heaven and hell. Christian believes in eternal life after this world. The the list goes on and on of things we could try to use to describe what a Christian is based on what it is we believe. But eventually we run into the same problem as before. If we try to describe what a Christian looks like just based on what we believe, never seems to capture the full picture of what it means to follow Jesus. There are many who might claim to believe all these things, but their lives are nearly indistinguishable from any of their non-Christian neighbors. So if we just simply say, well, a Christian is someone who believes this set of things, you might have all sorts of people who say, yeah, I, I believe all those and more. But when you look at the evidence of their life, it shows little to no evidence of God's word being deeply rooted in their life. James, in his epistle, addresses this tension by admonishing those who would say they believe in Jesus, they're following him, but whose lives don't show any evidence of that. In James chapter 2, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James tells his readers, you can claim all you want. I believe in God. I follow Jesus. But if it doesn't change any single thing about what you do throughout the day, then those claims are pointless and lifeless. And so what does a Christian look like? Or again, more personally, as a follower of Jesus Christ, what should I look like? What we see all throughout the New Testament is the marriage of belief and action, of believing in Christ, but in that belief, having a new life that leads us to living in a new sort of way. And this morning, Peter gives us part of the answer to that question, what should a Christian look like? And his answer is this, a Christian is one who thinks like Christ and lives to bring him glory. Peter would say a Christian is one who thinks like Christ and lives to bring him glory. 
So if you have your Bible open, follow along as I read from 1 Peter 4. We'll start in verse 1. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. In writing to Christians scattered all throughout, Peter gives an instruction in these verses. He tells his readers to arm themselves with the same way of thinking, verse 1. That, of course, leads us to ask, same as what? We're supposed to think the same way, but the same way as what or the same way as who? And from the context, it's apparent that we should have the same way of thinking as Jesus himself, that we should seek to emulate the way Jesus thought when he was in the flesh, on this earth, in our own lives. However, curiously, Peter says the reason that we should emulate Jesus in the way that we think is because he suffered. Peter says, since therefore Christ suffered, because Christ suffered, you should think the same way as Jesus. On the face, that feels a little bit backwards. Peter's instruction is to think like Christ, and his reason for instructing that is because of all the suffering that Christ endured. Usually when we're trying to find people to emulate, we look for what might be called success stories. If a friend came up to you and said, I found a restaurant that you just have to go to, you might ask, oh, did you have a good meal there? It was good appetizers. If that friend looked at you and said, no, I, I didn't. It was a bad meal. <laughs> you probably wouldn't take that recommendation. We, we try to find success stories when we're finding things to copy or when we're trying to look for advice of what to do. We want to see some evidence that it's going to work. But Peter is here saying, you should follow Christ in the way he thinks because he suffered a whole lot. But he goes on to explain this very recommendation. The second half of verse 1, he says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So his reasoning is this. Whoever suffers in this life, like Jesus suffered, can cease from sin and live for the will of God. Therefore, you should emulate Jesus so that you can cease from sin and live for God. Now, immediately, we have to understand that the phrase cease from sin doesn't mean that we just stop sinning in our life right away. Rather, by accepting suffering when it comes, instead of choosing sin, it demonstrates that a person is no longer a slave to sin. So the person who goes throughout their life saying that I am going to suffer as Christ suffered in this life is demonstrating I'm no longer ruled by the passions of the flesh and of this world, so I'm not going to choose sin anymore. I'm going to choose life in God. 
Paul says in Romans 8 that the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So to cease from sin is saying that the chains that sin had on your life to keep you in slavery, those are broken now. You don't have to walk in sin. None of us will be perfect in this life, so we will still sin throughout our lives. But through the power of the Spirit, we have the option to follow God instead of sin. And in fact, as we go throughout life following God longer and longer, we ought to be putting sin to death more and more in our life. Now, certainly one day, God will complete that work so much to where ceasing from sin means that every trace of sin is gone in our lives. That's a hope that we have to look forward to, but we also have the great hope that in this life, sin, which was once our slave master that held us in chains, no longer has power over us, and that we can choose instead to live for the will of God. So, the person who thinks like Jesus even if that means suffering instead of being able to live in the human passions that we might have once wanted, that person is demonstrating that the Spirit has broken the chains of sin and death and set them free in Christ Jesus. So Peter says, because Christ suffered, you should follow him. Because if you follow him, sin will be broken in your life and you will be able to live in the will of God. So for to follow Jesus in his way of thinking, and in the kind of thinking that led to his suffering, then we have to ask, why did he suffer? Why was it that Jesus, when he came to this earth, ended up with so much suffering in his life? At the beginning of chapter 4, Paul is continuing an explanation. He started back in chapter 3. Just a few verses before the passage we read, he says this. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Peter explains here the reason for Jesus' suffering. He explains here how Jesus suffered when he was here on earth. There's two things that we should notice about Jesus' suffering so we can understand Jesus' thinking so that we might be able to arm ourselves to think in the same way. The first is this. Jesus suffered despite the fact that he did good. Peter again says in chapter 3, verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good if it should be God's will, than for doing evil. Jesus is someone who is the definition of suffering while doing good. Throughout his entire ministry, Jesus was opposed and resisted by the religious leaders. And oftentimes they would try to set up traps to trip him up, to fool him so that they could ruin his reputation or that they could expose some sort of scandal. But every single time, Jesus was able to outsmart them because he was the son of God So he had all knowledge, but then he also lived a perfect life. So if you look throughout everything Jesus ever said and did, there's not a hidden scandal waiting to be uncovered. 
There's not some sort of incongruity between what he said and what he did. Jesus came to earth, and because he was fully God and fully man, lived a perfect, blameless, spotless life. Now, eventually, the religious leaders got fed up enough that they plotted to have him arrested, and then eventually he was put on trial and crucified. He was executed by the Roman government. And even though they tried to come up with sort of a slate of convictions that he was being executed for, there wasn't anything that was true in what they said. In fact, as people were trying to bring forward charges against Jesus, what we see from the Gospels is that they couldn't even agree on what sort of false charges to bring up. Because there wasn't a true story among them of something wrong that Jesus had done. And so he was arrested and ultimately executed, having lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life. He suffered while doing good, not as a result or a consequence of some evil or wrongdoing he had done. The prophet Isaiah said this concerning Jesus, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah, even 700 years before Jesus' life, is able to, through the Spirit of God, prophesy concerning his death, saying that he was led to slaughter, he was led to the cross and his execution as if he was a criminal, when in reality he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. He was like a lamb led to slaughter, but he was a spotless lamb who in no way deserved the death that he died. So Jesus' suffering wasn't the consequence of living a wicked and evil life. It came as he was living a righteous life. So that's the first thing Peter shows us of Jesus' suffering. It's not something that came upon him rightly or justly. Rather, his suffering in the flesh was a sinful world trying to rebel against its perfect creator. So likewise, as we try to have the same mind as Christ, if suffering comes upon us, may it be in the middle of us attempting to live righteous life through the power of the Spirit. Oftentimes, Christians can feel that they are persecuted or oppressed, but at the same time are living evil or wicked lives. And the oppression that's coming against them is just a consequence of living out of step with God. If suffering should ever come against us, may it be while we're following him, not while we are wandering away. The second thing we see about Jesus' suffering and similar is that he suffered because he was following his Father's will. Again, Peter says it's better to suffer for doing good, but then also says if that is the will of the Father. Jesus' entire time on earth was spent doing the will of the Father. He didn't come to earth specifically to seek out crucifixion. Rather, he came to the earth to be obedient to his Father. That would lead to his death. 
that would lead to crucifixion and all the suffering that he endured, but that wasn't his goal by coming here just to suffer. Rather, his goal was to be obedient to his father, wherever that may lead. And even on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed, asking that there might be a way in which he could follow the will of his father without enduring the crucifixion. And in that moment, the father's answer was no. That to be obedient to his will, Jesus must endure the cross. And so that's what Jesus did. Above all else, on his time here on earth, Jesus was concerned with being obedient to the will of his Father. And so that led him to a garden where he would be arrested. That led him to a mock trial, and ultimately it led him to his crucifixion, all because of his love for the Father and his desire to do the Father's will. So likewise, our example is to emulate Jesus Jesus, who lived a righteous life and sought to follow his Father's will. And even when those two things, of living righteously and trying to follow God's will, even when those two things led to suffering, Jesus didn't shy away and choose what was comfortable or choose what have, might, might have gratified him in the flesh. Rather, he chose to suffer in his life on earth so that he might be obedient to the Father and deliver eternal life for God's people. So again, Christian, as you come into occasions where you might face opposition or suffering for your faith, may it be in the midst of seeking above all else to follow the will of the Father. Several years ago, I took a missions trip to Thailand. While I was there, I met a young woman who desired to be a, a missionary internationally long-term, and she seemed nice enough, and she had a great desire to be faithful to Christ. But she had this strange fixation on martyrdom, even to the point of saying that she greatly hoped that she could be a martyr for Christ. And on the surface, that seems like a noble claim to say that you'd be willing to give your life for your faith. But I think underneath that, the danger is sort of this puffed-up pride that I might be able to demonstrate the resolve of my faith all the way to death. Rather, the concern should be not that I might die for my faith, but that I might be obedient to the Father wherever my faith leads me. So we don't need to seek out opposition. We don't need to seek out suffering just to prove that our faith is genuine, to prove that our faith is real. Rather, we just need to be concerned with obedience to the Father wherever he has us in this moment. For some, that will lead to suffering. For others, it won't. But for both, the task is to obey the Father in his will. And that's a task that the Spirit, who has made us alive, enables us to complete. And notice Jesus in his suffering. He didn't do that to prove himself to the Father. God the Father did pronounce his pleasure over God the Son, Jesus Christ. But he didn't just do that after Jesus was willing to go to the cross and be resurrected. Rather, the Father proclaimed 
long before Jesus was crucified, at the occasion of his baptism, that that was his son in whom he was well pleased. So Jesus did not walk all the way to Calvary in the hopes that he might earn the Father's approval or affection, or he might demonstrate that his obedience was strong enough. Rather, Jesus already enjoying the Father's affection and approval out of joy and love for his Father was obedient even to the point of death. Likewise, for us, we have nothing to prove in our love for God, because apart from him, we had no love for him at all. Rather, he's the one who has called us, made us alive, and given us a love for himself. And we already enjoy his affection. And he says, I am pleased in who you are. So because of that, we are freed up to follow him in obedience. So Peter says, we ought to arm arm ourselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus had. That way of thinking says that suffering in this life is far preferable than living in the human passions of the world if suffering means that we can live for the will of God. So if it's a choice between living in the passions, the human passions of the flesh, or it's a choice of going through suffering but living with God, Might we have the same kind of thinking that says, I'll take suffering 10 times out of 10 if it means that I can live with God. After exhorting his readers to think in the same way that Christ does, Peter acknowledges the difficulty we'll face. Look in verse 3. For the time is past. For the time past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. At one time, we lived in the human passions of the flesh or the flood of debauchery that he describes in verse 3. It's strong language filled with vivid examples of worldly living. But his point is that apart from living for God, we'll spend our entire lives living for ourselves and trying to get our fill of worldly pleasure. But ultimately, our time on earth will expire and we will stand before the judge of the universe. So the list he gives in verse 3, it's not just an exhaustive list. Rather, it's representative of the kinds of passions that we try to live in. But the human heart will try to find fulfillment and satisfaction in any corner of the world that it can. So it might be loud parties with drinking and dancing, or it might be fly fishing. But the human heart will try anything in this world to find fulfillment. Peter says that time has passed. For those who are trusting in Christ's atoning work on the cross... We no longer live for the things that this world offers to us. We can live for something far greater, far more satisfying, and far more fulfilling. Because we've been made alive to God, which means that we can live with him, giving him glory and enjoying his grace for all eternity. So when we weigh the two, the human passions that the world can offer us or the eternal life with God. He says, have the same way of thinking that Christ did. Living for God is the only option that makes sense. 
So we can return to our original question, what does a Christian look like? A Christian is one who thinks like Christ and lives to bring him glory. A Christian is one who has armed themselves with that same way of thinking, but that's still somewhat abstract. If we're asking what does a Christian look like, it's still in the abstract to just say, well, they think like Christ does. Well, how does Christ think? Let's look again to 1 Peter 4 and starting in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So at the beginning of chapter 4, Peter says that we ought to have the same way of thinking that Christ does, because Christ through his suffering demonstrated an abiding desire to live for the Father's will. And now here in the second half of the chapter, Peter gives us four specific examples of what it will look like when we think the same way that Christ thinks. There's countless ways that this will affect our lives, but he gives us here just four examples that we can look to to see if we have the same mind that Christ has. So I want us to see these four examples. The first that if we have the same way of thinking that Christ does, we will be self-controlled and sober-minded. Look again at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Christian, your hope is secured in the eternal promises of God. And so as the world around us totters and shakes, we don't have to live in panic. As things can at times seem overwhelming and hopeless on this earth, we understand that throughout the arc of all history, there is in fact great hope. Not only just for us individually, but for the world and for all who would trust in Christ, there is great hope. That can serve as a ballast for us in the stormy waters of this world. But we must also remain aware that Christ's return is imminent. The end of all things is at hand. Peter wrote these words 2,000 years ago. And we could try to say his prediction was off just a little bit because he says the end is at hand, but 2,000 years have passed since then and the end still hasn't arrived. But Peter's not giving a prediction that the end of all things when Christ comes back and God judges the living and the dead and sin is put to death. He's not giving a prediction of a specific time that will take place. Rather, throughout God's arc of redemption, there is nothing left between us and the end of all things. At one time, God's people were waiting for a savior. Just very broadly, even in Genesis, he promised he would send a savior, but they knew next to nothing about who that savior was, so they waited to hear more. And then after a while, God's people were Abraham's people. And Abraham waited to see that he would have 
descendants that were countless, and he would have a land that his people could call their own. So they waited to see a great nation born and a land established. And they were waiting for God to deliver that, and he did. And then after that nation of Israel was established, God said that that Savior he had promised Eve would come through the nation of Israel, and he started giving more and more description of who that Savior would be, so the nation of Israel was able to wait for the Savior's arrival. And then right there, as we see in the beginning of our New Testament, he arrived. And throughout his earthly ministry, he spoke of the kingdom of God. He went to the cross. He won salvation for God's people, and he ascended back to the Father. And ever since Jesus left, until now, we've been in the same waiting period, and that is waiting for Christ to come again and for the end of all things. There's no more mileposts between us and the end of all things like God's people have had in the past. We're not waiting to see if Abraham is made into a great nation because that already happened. We're not waiting to see if Israel will be able to take the promised land because that already happened. We're not waiting to see if God will send a Savior because he already did. All that's left in the story of redemption for us to wait for is that end when God makes all things right and his Savior returns. And so it has been just as true as when Peter wrote the words from then until today that the end of all things is at hand. We might not even get to the end of today before God returns, or he might not return for another millennia. But in his providence, he knows the timing. And Peter tells his readers, are you living with the awareness that the end is at hand? Brothers and sisters, if this evening you're standing before God to give account for your life, are you ready to say, I lived a sober-minded life that was waiting for this moment? Or is sort of the end of your own life or the end of all things just sort of a far-off thought that you can worry about later, but for now, I've got some other things I can focus on here. Or are our minds keeping that end in mind that we might live sober-minded knowing the end is near? There are still many who have not trusted in Christ as their Savior. There are still good works that God has given me to do that I have time left to do. So Peter says, if you're following in the mind of Christ, you'll be self-controlled and sober-minded, keeping the end in mind, knowing that God can come at any moment. The second mark of having the same mind of Christ is loving one another. Loving one another to such an extent that that love covers a multitude of sins. Here, Peter is echoing words that Solomon gives in Proverbs to say that if you love someone, that love can cover over. In Solomon's case, he said all sins. Peter says a multitude of sins. And very practically, what this means for us is that as we have interactions with one another, we can have a love for one another because Christ has made us all family together. And that means that we don't have to keep a tally of all the small offenses that others have made against us. So that means that if you have a Christian brother or sister who does something that's hurtful or offensive, there is a time and place to just let that go, to say, you know what, I know that they, trusting in Christ, I believe the best of their intentions, 
In this one case, there was an offense, but because of my love for them, I can let that go. I don't have to hold on to that. It doesn't just have to remain a bitterness in my life. And even if, if there's a Christian brother or sister who has hurt you to such an extent that you have to go and talk to them, you can go in with love, assuming the best of them, knowing that Christ has called you both to life, given you both the same way of thinking in him, and you can go and have that confrontation out of love. Saying, what you said here, what you did was hurtful or it was offensive, but I trust in Christ that wasn't your intention, but I need you to know that's, that's the effect it had on me. When we love one another well, it means that a lot of the small bumps along the way we can just overlook, knowing that Christ has paid for it, just like he's paid for all of the small things and large things I do in my life that are sinful, so I don't have to hold an account and keep a tally of all the ways I've been wronged. The third way that we can have the same mind of Christ is to show hospitality. We just spent four weeks looking at the way that Jesus showed hospitality to his followers. And ultimately what we see there is that our hospitality with one another, the way that we welcome one another in, reflects the welcome that we've received from God into his family. And so what we have in this church is people from all different places, all different walks of life, all different rungs on the ladder, the ladder of economic success. But all of us who are trusting in Christ have the most important thing in common, and that is that we are children of God, and he has made us brothers and sisters. And so because of that, we can welcome in and show hospitality to people that we in any other area of life would never even talk to. And so whenever we welcome each other in with people we have no business interacting with, we're displaying the gospel by showing that the good news is for everyone in any walk of life and that no matter who you are, you can be welcomed in by God. And we reflect that by the way we show hospitality to one another that we help one another when we're in a hard time, or that we provide comfort and refuge for each other in times of difficulty or struggle. Brothers and sisters, a church that shows hospitality well and loves one another well is a church that gives an oasis of relief to one another in the deserts of life. So be actively looking Who's out there in my church family that I can show that kind of hospitality to? And the last example of what it looks like to have the mind of Christ is serving one another with our gifts. In verse 10, he says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. God has a common grace that he's given to all people on earth. A grace that even though we're sinners, he doesn't just wipe us out right away. But then God gives a particular grace to believers by calling them to new life. And that is available to any who would call on Jesus. 
For any who would confess their sin and turn to Jesus as their Savior, the same grace is given of new life and adoption into his family. But then even further, Peter tells us God has varied grace that he gives out to his children, where he gifts us differently. He gives us different strengths and abilities that complement one another. And so we have people in our church family who are particularly gifted in the ways that they're able to serve one another through their actions. We have people in our church who are particularly gifted in the way that they can teach God's word to others. We have people in our church who are gifted in the way that they're able to just organize things, whether for church or in other areas of life, in a way that brings God glory. And so for each person in our church family, God has given you just a little bit different shape from everyone else of your strengths and abilities so that you might use it to serve the others in the church. But for all of us, whatever that gift, strength, or ability looks like, remember it's God's grace. Peter says if you're going to speak oracles of God, you're only speaking the message that God has supplied you. If you're going to serve and use that strength that God has given you, you're only doing that in the strength that God supplies. When we use our gifts well, it's in a way that brings God glory because we see that it's only through his power that we're able to serve at all. And so a church where all the brothers and sisters use their varied gifts together ultimately gives God glory because we see all the different ways that he can make us and build us so that we might encourage one another. So what does a Christian look like? A Christian is one who thinks like Christ and lives to bring him glory. That means that in the midst of a tumultuous world, we can be self-controlled and sober-minded, aware of the end of all things is at hand. It means that we can have a deep, profound love for one another even when we regularly offend and hurt one another. We can forgive over and over again. It means that we'll show an open-handed hospitality towards one another as the world looks on. And it means that we'll serve with the gifts that God has given us so that we might be built up and that we might be able to build others up. So we have the same way of thinking that Christ did. Whatever the world has to offer, that's rubbish. Because what God has offered is eternal life with him and we can begin to experience that now, and someday we will experience it with God face to face for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word in Peter. And I ask for any who are trusting in Christ that we might understand the way Christ suffered, we might emulate his thinking. Father, I ask for any who are confused of why someone would choose suffering over the comforts of this world. You might open their eyes to your grace and the goodness given through Jesus Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.